So it is Pentecost Sunday, so today we're going to look at uh, the account of Pentecost in the book of Acts. This is uh, something the church traditionally has done every year. There's a church calendar. We don't stick to the whole thing, but there are certain highlights of the big moves that God has made in history, in salvation history, to save his church and to empower his church. And just like Christmas is sort of like the birth of Christ, Pentecost is really the birth of the church, where all of the promises that God made in the Old Testament through the prophets, uh, through uh, the law, through the feast days of Israel, everything was pointing to this one promise when God promised that the separation between God and man would end and that through Christ, he would usher in a new age where the power of the Spirit would flow through Jesus and out into the world into all who believe. And this is the day that it happened. So it's important, it's good for us to go back once a year and think about this and look at it, not just to think about what happened in the past, but to re-remember what it means for us today and to reimagine what the Christian life might look like if we took this seriously. So let's read. Would you please stand if you're able uh, as God speaks to us through his inerrant word. This is Acts chapter 2. Verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And now they were dwelling in Jerusalem. Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native tongue, Parthians and Medes and Elamites? Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, uh, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But the others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, In the beginning of the modern Pentecostal movement, uh, the resurgence of speaking in tongues was universally thought uh, to be the divine gift of having learned and having knowledge of a foreign language uh, that you had never learned before. And it was thought to be uh, a manifestation of the spirit that would empower this final thrust of world missions that would bring the gospel all the way around the globe. Uh, And nobody believed that more uh, than a man named A.G. and uh, Gar and his wife Lillian, who both set sail to India after having become convinced that this manifestation of the Spirit had taught them how to speak Bengali, Hindustani, Tibetan, and Chinese uh, through the Azusa Street Revival in 1906. And when upon arriving uh, to India, when a resident missionary who had been there for a while told Gar that his gift of Bengali was undis- indistinguishable, 
he refused to believe him and forged ahead into miserable failure and embarrassment in India. And then, still not wanting to doubt the blessing of the Lord, the Gars moved to Hong Kong in October that same year to evangelize the Chinese. And they eventually succumbed to the realization that, that if, if they wanted to stay in Hong Kong, they were going to have to learn the languages the old-fashioned way. A uh, tragic story. People who really meant well. People who literally gave up their lives for Christ to go to another country and be witnesses for Jesus. Um, however, they were terribly wrong in what they thought about Pentecost. And in the process, they had one daughter die of bubonic plague. They lost another daughter in childbirth because there wasn't health care. And for the Gars, uh, it was a terribly costly lesson in theology and the theology of the Holy Spirit in particular. Uh, And unfortunately, tragically, that wasn't the first movement in the church that basically misunderstood and misapplied the meaning of Pentecost. Uh, in, In 50 AD, the Corinthian church were misunderstanding and misapplying the gifts of the Spirit, particularly tongues. And Paul had to tell them, this is not for your entertainment. A hundred years later, 150 AD, there was a group, uh, a sect of Christians called the Montanists. Montanus believed that he was the paraclete, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Same thing, speaking in tongues, um, the same sort of stuff happened, uh, and the same sort of tragedy ensued. Throughout the Middle Ages, there were uh, mystics who thought that they would be able to have a a direct power source with God bypassing Jesus and all sorts of tragedy and, and, and all sorts of difficulty has happened in the church when people have misunderstood the nature of Pentecost and especially misapplied it. So it's really important that we understand what it is that happened there, what it means, what it meant, and what it means for us still today. And the reality is that Pentecost was and is one of the most important supernatural events uh, in the history of salvation and God's mighty acts throughout history. And that the power unleashed there is still operating today and, 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 and it's still powering us today, but we have to think about it in the right way. We have to put Pentecost within the larger framework of the Bible, within the larger framework of, of the history of redemption, within the context of what God is doing in the world. And when we do that, the biggest thing we come out of it, understanding, uh, is that just like everything else God does, Pentecost, like everything else, is primarily about what God has done for us and not what we are supposed to work or strive for which is a common theme with God. So let's look at that. I want to look at three things. First, uh, first thing is this, that Pentecost was primarily about God fulfilling his promises. It was primarily about God fulfilling his promises. Uh, I have this fascination with automatic watches. They, uh, what fascinates me about them is the precision they're totally mechanical. It's not a quartz watch. There's 200, not this one, but in a good one, <laughs> in a good one, there's 220 pieces in that watch. 
uh, and in those watches, they take over a year to make. Uh, they beat eight times per second, which means they beat 691,200 times per day, uh, which is what, like 64,700 seconds. And the good ones, they only lose about a second a day. Think about that. Out of, out of 691,700 moves, they're so precise those 220 parts put in that tiny little case, that they're accurate to losing only one or two seconds a day. That's nuts when you really think about it. And we've been making these since like the late 1800s. It's really amazing what we're able to do with that. But as precise and as amazing as automatic watches are, they are nothing compared to the giant chronograph that God has assembled in the universe, in the galaxy, and laid out for us in the word. For example, uh, it says here uh, in Genesis chapter 1, right in the beginning, when God creates the sun, the moves, the stars, God creates something and then he tells what its purpose is and he says of the sun, the moon, the stars, in other words, the galaxy, the, the, sea, the constellations that we can see. Uh, the sun and the moon, the months and years, it says that God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let let them be for signs and seasons for days and years. Really a better translation would be for signs, we know what that is, and appointed times is what the word means. And what are these appointed times that he's talking about? He's talking about the feasts of Israel. In Torah, God gave these feasts for Israel to celebrate every year like clockwork for a thousand years. Every three times a year, all the Jews had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And during that feast was the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits. Uh, and then there was a gap of time, 50 days, and they get, came back again to celebrate Pentecost, which was the harvest celebration. And then there were, uh, and then, um, Three months later, there was another feast called Trumpets. But why? So why am I telling you about that? Why is it so important about that? Well, we look, remember we were looking in the Gospel of John and we pulled out of the text that on the Passover, during the Passover, when Jesus was being inspected by the high priests and judged by Pilate, at the exact same time, they could hear the bleeding of the Passover lambs in the temple courts as the priests inspected the Passover lambs for slaughter. And what did Pilate say about Jesus? That I find nothing wrong with him. This is a spotless and perfect and blemished lamb. And then what happened on the day of Passover? Christ, our Passover lamb, was crucified for us. And then the next day is the day of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is, talks about sinlessness, where the sinless son of God was buried in the ground. And then what happens on the Sunday after Passover was the Feast of first fruits, where Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And Paul in 1 Corinthians says that Jesus, his resurrection, was the first fruit of the harvest of souls that would take place. So Jesus' resurrection was on the day of first fruits when they would wave a sheaf of grain in front of the temple, signifying the very first fruit of the harvest. Fifty days later, the harvest celebration, Pentecost, God pours the Spirit out onto all mankind and the harvest of souls begins. 
like clockwork to the day. For a thousand years, Israel celebrated those festivals in order. And when the time came, in the fullness of time, God brought, God incarnated, became man, born uh, under the law, born of a woman, and underwent Passover as our Passover lamb, resurrected on the day of first fruits, ascended into heaven, and 50 days later, poured out his spirit on Pentecost, beginning the great harvest of souls. That's crazy. That's crazy. Bonus round. There's another festival three months later called the Feast of Trumpets. And where we see trumpets in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see trumpets calling the church into the air to meet Christ when he returns in glory. Uh, Nobody knows the time or the day, but that's going to happen on September 30th of this year in case anybody wants to get excited about it. I always get excited in September. You never know. Be ready. So what does that mean? I mean, God, that means that God like lined all those festivals up in order to fulfill them in that order to show us that this was something that he was doing. He laid it all out ahead of time. Those festivals is prophetic forecasting. And then Jesus came and fulfilled them. Bang, 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 bang. All in order. So what that means is, when we first think about Pentecost, the first thing we need to get through our minds is that Pentecost is primarily a redemptive historical event in history. Meaning, it's got a place on the timeline. It's not something that we can recreate over and over again as often as we want. It was an event just like Exodus. There was a certain point in the program of God where he caused the exodus to happen right on time. In the same way, he caused Pentecost to happen right on time. It was something that God did, fulfilling his promises to us to pour out the Spirit, the big promise of the Old Testament. So when we think about Pentecost, we shouldn't think about it in the terms of we need to like recreate this event and recreate this power. The event has occurred in history right when it was supposed to, on the Feast of Pentecost. uh, And that is what it means. So, however, uh, even though it was a redemptive historical event that happened on a specific day, that doesn't mean that it's still, the power of that event is still not churning out into the world. That was the beginning, and the power of that is still being unleashed in the world today. But we have to think about it rightly. So the second thing, second thing about Pentecost is that Pentecost was about God filling us with his life. Pentecost was about God filling us with his life. Just like, number one, Pentecost was about God fulfilling his promises, something God did. Two, Pentecost is about God filling us with his life, something that God does, is doing. Uh, one of my more terrifying moments in life was I had to drive through uh, a Southern California firestorm. It was a major road, but it was a, ma- it was a major road that went through a valley, and on each side coming up from the road were hillsides going up, and on each side of the road there were 50 to 70 foot flames screaming up in the air, sounding like a freight train on either side of the road. I was like, 
I was shocked that they were letting us drive through it. Of course, I didn't want to pass up the opportunity, but it was amazing, but terrifying to drive. It was literally like, I was just thinking to myself, man, this is like driving through hell. It was so powerful seeing those flames. Um, However, as powerful as that was, seeing those flames and being as close to those flames as I was, those flames were nothing compared to the power and the intensity of the fire that settled upon Mount Sinai at the giving of the law. Uh, It was a small taste of that. But listen to this account. This is in Hebrews talking about the coming of the Lord onto Mount Sinai at the giving of the law. It said that the Lord, it, the Lord f- descended upon the top of the mountain uh, in fire that was so intense, the smoke of it went up like a kiln. Have you ever seen a, a real live nuclear fire from depleted uranium shells? That's what it looks like. There's explosion, fire, and smoke that shoots up at 60, 70 miles an hour. That's what it looked like. Uh, And here was their response. It says, this blazing fire and darkness and gloom surrounding it and a tempest, a cyclone, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. Please don't ever, ever, ever speak to us again, God. Indeed, it was so terrifying that even Moses, who was the friend of God, said, I am trembling with fear. That's how terrifying, terrifying it was. It was a mountaintop nuclear furnace. Uh, The fire represented the presence of God in all of his terrifying holiness. It was theophany. It was God coming as judge Uh, in front of sinful men in their sins, unable to come anywhere near that fire lest they be destroyed. And so God set this huge perimeter around the mountain saying, don't let anybody cross this line or they will come too close to my holiness and be incinerated. Uh, In this event... That same fire, that was theophany, that was God coming in judgment. Now, on Pentecost, it comes to this upper room to these people, and instead of coming in terror uh, and in judgment, it rests, it dwells on their head. The word is like it just calmly rested upon them. How is that possible? that the holy fire of God could just rest on someone's head, rest and be in that same proximity of those people in the room. And when it, says, when it says there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind, the English doesn't at all come close to what that's talking about. That is the same, same phrasing uh, that's used uh, in that passage we just read of the Sinai experience The sound of the mighty rushing wind is the same word as the sound of a trumpet and a voice. It's theophany. It's power. And the mighty word rushing wind is the same word as when uh, Isaiah, the prophet uh, Elijah, comes out and the Lord comes before him 
And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore at the mountains and broke into pieces the rocks before him. The point is that everywhere else, this kind of theophany of fire and of, and of devastating blast of the Lord's breath had happened. It was so powerful, the physical universe began to dissolve in its presence. And people were terrified. And yet here, in this room, when it came, the same thing. It rested and brought peace. How is that even possible? How is that even possible? Well, Peter's first sermon tells us. That's what that first sermon's all about. He says that this is happening now. This is able to happen now because Jesus has completed his mission. That Jesus was presented as our sinless Passover lamb. Uh, He was buried as the sinless sacrifice, the son of God. Uh, And so now, because of that, he has reconciled us to God. So that we can be in God's presence without disintegrating in his holiness. Because we have Jesus' righteousness. We are now able to be in fellowship and in the presence of God and all that power. In fact, he's able to live in us. Uh, Jesus earned for us, Peter says, the promise of the Holy Spirit for God. And now Jesus is the channel. He is the conduit. All of the power of God's Spirit is pouring through Jesus, God and man, out into the world in these aqueducts of spirit power to all who believe. Uh, And now that power and that presence to this day pouring out onto the earth. That's what's happening. This is the beginning of that happening. Uh, And you know the story. What happens? Peter calls out this sermon and 3,000 people are saved that first day. Boom, Holy Spirit. All those that God had called to himself goes out from Jesus from heaven. Peter preaches in the power of the Spirit, gives the official apostolic meaning of the event and the power of the Spirit pours out and 3,000 people are saved. You know why? When it says 3,000 people, it's supposed to call our minds back to a verse in the Old Testament where on the day the law was given and Israel rebelled against that, it says that 3,000 men of the people fell. What it's trying to tell us And if you do the math, you figure out that the law was given on the day of Pentecost. Same day. God is trying to tell us something. That the law brings death. The law can only bring death to us. We cannot keep it. It can only condemn us. It cannot give us the power to obey it. And so 3,000 people are killed on the first day in, in the face of the law, on the same day, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out. And Jesus, is, God is teaching us that the Spirit alone is able to bring life. That's what's happening. It's the Spirit of God pouring out through Jesus to his people, bringing us eternal life. That's the big point. And we mess around with that, man. Bad stuff happens to people. There's a, one of the tragic stories I heard from a, a pastor I used to listen to. Uh, it was a man 
who was an elder in his church, who was a part of a, a, a church that believed in the second blessing of the Spirit. He's an elder of the church, uh, played in the band, and when he died, as his son was cleaning out his house, he found a gigantic collection uh, of way out in left field adult magazines. And the guy tells the story, he says, I, always, I knew that my dad was a saved man because he played in the band and every time they would play uh, uh, Great Is Your Faithfulness and he would sing that line, my heart prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. His dad would just start shedding tears down his cheeks. But see, he had received the second blessing uh, and he was sinless in the eyes of the congregation. And he couldn't ever go and talk to anybody about it. He couldn't go to anybody because he was the guy who was supposed to be sinless. It's tragic. That's not what that's about. It's about what Jesus has done for us to save us from our sin. It's outside of us. Jesus has accomplished this. Jesus is pouring out his spirit on us even now. No matter how much of a train wreck your week was this week, you are not, you are not, you are not, your hand is not on the valve of spirit power based on your obedience this week. That's not how it works. <laughs> Man, I want it to work like that, you know? Man, I want it to work like that because then I'm in control. Then I'm in control. Like I can say, Man, I really need some stuff this week, so I'm going to do. I'm going to be real obedient. Then I can go to that pipeline and crank that blessing of God open. I'm going to direct all that spirit power into this that I need. That's what I want it to be like, but that's not it. That ain't how it works. It's better than that. It is so much better than that. Jesus controls that pipeline, and the pipeline is open. Whether you feel it or not, his power, his spirit is still indwelling you still powering you, still drawing you to himself, still bringing you in courses of discipline and blessing to, to, to break you of your cling to deathly things. That's his love. And what we're called to do is rest in that. And as we rest in that and we become comfortable with Jesus, those things then start to fall away. And he shows us that that power that he's given us is for something so much greater and so much bigger than what we want to make it to be. That's the third thing. The last thing is that Pentecost was and is a a centrifuge. You know what a centrifuge is? One of my favorite rides at the Del Mar Fair, I don't know if they still have this, it might be totally illegal by now, it should be, is invented by a sadistic German engineer in the 1940s. It's a, a ride called the Rotor. And what it was, it was a 20-foot cylinder that you would step in, step up against the wall, and it would begin to spin, uh, and it reached a speed, talking about precision, speed, it reaches a speed of, of rotating twice per second. Think about that. A 20-foot-long cylinder. And then the floor would drop out and you would be stuck 
on the walls, right? Which then prompted you, of course, young men especially, uh, brave young men, to do sorts of acrobatic tricks along the walls of this centrifuge, uh, along the walls of this rotor, trying to get as close as you could to the top. And once in a while, every once in a while, one of those young men would succeed in getting close to the top and be slung out of the rotor. And in that moment, the rotor became a centrifuge. That's what a centrifuge is. It's a spinning power that casts out. Prior, in the Old Testament, the gospel or uh, uh, the presence of God was centripetal, meaning that Jerusalem was set up as a jewel to all the nations. They were given the law uh, and the nations were, were drawn into Jerusalem to see God's beauty and power and the worship of God and the beauty of his law. Think about the Queen of Sheba that comes to see uh, uh, Solomon and all of his wisdom. That's how it was supposed to work. But when Pentecost came, it ceased being, the spirit power ceased being centripetal, and it reversed. Started spinning the other way and started throwing out into the nations, into the world. Why was the fire in the form of a tongue? That's the same word as the tongues they're speaking. And the tongues they're speaking are all foreign languages of all these areas that the gospel is going to go out to. These are all Jews. They all speak Hebrew. They all live in Jerusalem. Why is he speaking to them in tongues? He's saying, guess what? You're all going out. You're going back. You're going back to your birthland to tell them of how the Lord has blessed you. And the first Peter, Peter's first sermon, powered with the Spirit, proclaims the gospel. Thousands of people are saved. Uh, early church, they're all filled with the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do through them? They continue to speak the word of God. Read, gospel, with boldness. Uh, and when they started to get all comfy in Jerusalem, thinking, well, maybe that ends of the earth thing was uh, Jesus' You know, just being a, just hyperbole. God brought, by the power of the Spirit, God brought persecution to the Jerusalem church and forced them out over the top, back to their homelands. Where, if you read the Acts, it's, it's hilarious because even when they get back to their homelands, even though over and over and over and over again they've been given the command to preach to the Gentiles, they don't do it. They preach to the synagogues, to their own people. And quite by accident, one Gentile gets saved. Everybody thinks it's a freak occurrence. And then quite by accident, again, all the Gentiles show up and they're saved in mass. And then they all come back to Jerusalem and go, what's going on? <laughs> Why are the Gentiles being, it's really, it's funny if you read it like that. Because they're clueless. They're like us. They want to sit in our, they wanted to sit in their, they wanted to sit on the couch in Jerusalem. You know, watch Game of Thrones and have a nice life. They didn't want to get cast out into dangerous and uncomfortable situations preaching the gospel, but that's what the power of the Spirit is. You know, I got a, when I, pre, when I, I taught in China in May, I had a student who was from Tibet. He's been kicked out of the Tibet by the Chinese government six times. Uh, and the way, that, the way the government works in China, you just wait for things to chill out and then pay somebody off and you go back. 
So he had done that, but he started a church in Tibet, and it began to get so, uh, it started to blow up, and so the Chinese government came in and broke them up, and they had to move in small groups to six different locations. Guess what happened? All six locations blew up. Uh, my students in my Pentateuch class from two years ago in early, at early rain, they, they uh, came in and arrested all of them, put them into uh, re-education camps, and then deported them to all their hometowns. And I was like, yes. One of my students sent me a video of him sitting down with the cops who had raided his small group preaching the gospel to them. I was like, Chinese government, thank you. You just grabbed a handful of seed and went all over China. That, that's spirit power. That's what spirit power looks like. It looks like preaching the gospel to the police who have raided your small group and watching them sit down and listen. It's like being terrified and sharing something, starting a spiritual conversation with a coworker, and then being shocked when they actually respond. <laughs> it's about doing it and being ridiculed and being able to do it again anyways in gentleness and respect. So here's a problem. When we think about Pentecost, we think too small. That's it. We think too small. In our time-bound, earth-bound minds, we just can't get over the hump to think about Pentecost in terms of parlor tricks. That's what the Corinthian church did. They had this gift, these powers, and instead of going out, they were all sitting in the worship service entertaining one another. And Paul says, no, that's not it. We think too small. We haven't been given power to do parlor tricks. We have been given power to go out into the world and bring dead people to life. People who we will see shining like the stars forever and ever and ever in our eternal home. That's what Pentecost is all about. And that's the power that we still have right now. And so God promises us two things. Number one, it'll be rough. <laughs> Number two, It'll be totally worth it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, your plan for us is so much better than anything we ever think of. Lord, we know you have, you have set your promise. You've promised us. And you cannot lie. You have promised us that as we speak the gospel that through the silliness, through the foolishness of speaking truth into the world, that you will accomplish your ends to it. Even though we may get beat down and beat up in the process, you promise that you're going to make that word bear fruit, whatever it is, and that in that, we are participating in the greatest thing that's ever happened or ever will happen in the world. The movement of God bringing dead people to life and transmigrating those souls into a new and perfect world. And we want that, Lord.